welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. Um, today we have the pleasure of having Barbara Morgan. She's the executive director of the Austin Film Festival. Uh, we're mobile today. We're actually in the Austin Film Festival studios uh, chatting with Barbara. So Barbara, I want to thank you so much for uh, spending time with me today. I know you're usually busy this time of year with the festival coming up right around the corner. So um, let's go go ahead and do a little bit of housekeeping and tell, tell us about you know what what are the important dates what uh what passes are still available uh things like that where we can find out some more information okay uh well the the festivals every october um as uh i hope people know we uh are a little bit different kind of film festival we're a writer's festival uh so we focus on story but we do because of that it gives us an opportunity to, to do all kinds of cool stuff um we do television writing and film and uh, we now do digital media and podcasts and playwriting are new for us so it's kind of cool we're getting into every aspect of it and so this year we have some really amazing um, broad uh, spectrum media writers coming in so um, the festival actually starts on october 26th and we run through november 2nd and the uh, first uh, four days are the conference, uh, which takes place, place mostly downtown. And then um, the 25th of October is our kickoff film and food party, and it's how we kind of get everything started, um, liquor people up, give them a bunch <laughs> of uh, what we consider sort of the last big meal, and then the festival kicks off the next day on Thursday, so. Nice, very, mm -hmm. ex very exciting, very busy, I'm sure, mm -hmm. for you. So. Um, Let's go back in time and tell us a little bit about what it was like to kind of get this whole thing started, because you got started in, what, 1993? Yeah, we um, we actually incorporated in 93, oh, and we started doing all of our prep for what ended up being the first festival in 94. Um, you know, we had a, we put together a screenplay competition, um, just trying to uh, do that kind of work get your name out there for what we wanted which was to be an, an international event not just a local film festival we actually wanted to be um, something that would be relevant to people all the time and that's where the writer idea came from uh, there's actually a producer here in town named Fred Miller who um, who suggested that we take that route and that writers had never really uh, been in the system, so to speak, and we found that to be true, and we also found it to be a great way to become relevant in the film festival world. Now there, I don't even know how many film festivals are out there. Seriously, there's probably 10,000. I mean, Austin alone has like 25 to 30, <laughs> and and those are real numbers, and I, I think we have as many as New York City, you know, and and the question is how do you manage to do that when there's so much content um, and for us it was it was really honoring uh, the writer uh, the writer became um, a, an interesting perspective um, to screen the films to people and to talk about them and they were also uh, amazing because they're interesting and funny and cool and they're not used to people paying any attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> right you know and so they also weren't people who tended to gather 
And so when we brought them in, they wanted to hang out. One of the first weird experiences we had the first year was that everybody wanted to, to change their return flights so that they could hang around for the panelists, so that they could hang around for another panelist panel because they had never really met before. They're not used to being on set um, always, and their you know television's a little different. But in the film, when we first started out, it was just film, and and it was a really great learning experience because the other thing we found out, which was so phenomenal and lucky for us, uh, is that writers tend to be very community oriented. They're people that maybe spend a lot of time by themselves, but they actually give a lot. They give back a lot. They're used to giving in their craft, you know? And so at the festival, they just gave, um, really wanted to impart their knowledge to the people who were attending. And uh, knowing that those people were trying to get into the place they were but also that they once had been that person you know trying to work their way up the rung in a system that's very difficult to maneuver so so it was just really cool we just couldn't have been luckier and um for my own personality it couldn't have been a better group of people to work with because they're not very high maintenance And they, um, they're just, they're, I could listen, you know, even after 24 years, I could listen to them all day long and do, you know, so, um, so that's really kind of our history. I mean, we came out that way. There weren't, there wasn't really uh, another general public film festival in Austin at the time. Actually, at that time, there was only the Austin Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. And so when we came out and started showing some of those big Hollywood movies and then independent film and then have this conference, you know, we, we were at a good time period to be breaking in. What, what was the, uh, I guess, Austin or Texas film scene sort of like at that point? Because I guess you had Slacker had come out maybe a few mm-hmm. years before that. And then I think really right around that time is kind of when, I guess, the more, what you think of today as sort of independent film was more so beginning to kind of break into the big time with I think you know Tarantino and mm-hmm. um, I'm struggling to think who Sex Lies and Videotape right uh, that was also sort Soderberg. of the Kevin Smith time period right. and you know um, it was weird the what was it like it was really busy I mean film it was a much smaller town. Um, no traffic jams <laughs> right. um, and and in addition to that. Uh, there were constant movies here because the made-for-TV world in the 90s was huge and Texas was uh, one of the main places people came and shot. Houston, Dallas here. Um, the uh, Las Colinas was in Dallas and they actually you know, had TV being done there. Uh, there were so many TV movies here. I, I seem to remember at the time there were always like six or seven full-time production crews here in Austin. Um, there were, uh, there was a really active, uh, I mean, film commission at the time we started um, was run by a woman named Marlene Saritsky. It was right before Tom Copeland t- took over. And Marlene was under Ann Richards and Ann was a huge proponent of film, huge. And in fact, she's the reason I took a proposal um, 
to Marlene and she gave it to Anne and that's how we started. They they encouraged us to do it. They were thrilled that somebody would start a film festival here and they really helped us a lot. Um, you know, they gave us the governor's mansion for a party the very first year. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, and they were they were really helpful and connected us to some folks and um, in fact, you know, one of our big board members who's been a board member since the beginning and came the first year was at the time president of Columbia Pictures, a guy named Barry Josephson. And Barry has a, a new show out now. He did Bones for years after he left Columbia. And then um, he has a new show on uh, um, Amazon called The Tick. And Barry was one of the people who came in and um, supported us that first year when nobody had ever heard of us. I mean, literally when I called him and he took my call, he said, sure, I'll come to Austin. You know, you get a party. And <laughs> of course we did. Right. And, uh, and the cool thing there was that he bought the winning screenplay um, through the competition that year. And he went on to make that film the next year at Columbia Pictures starring Alicia Silverstone. And that put us on the map. So it was all these kismet moments, truly, that um, th that were largely because this town was small, uh, it was kinetic, uh, the film industry was really huge here, and that stuff you were talking about certainly was in the world and circling at the time, but you know, so much had happened here because of people like Toby Hooper, who sadly recently passed, who had, you know, made this film that was an iconic horror film. And he did it here. And Bill Whitliff, who, you know, was a noted writer and made the most famous television miniseries of all time, Lonesome Dove, and Bud Shrake, and Bill Broyles, and who did Apollo 13, and all of these guys who were here, and they were all writers, actually. Um, and they they were a real reason people were getting familiar with Austin right. as a movie place. And you know, you can't ever forget um, the 800-pound gorilla that is the University of Texas, you know, that's always putting out all of these people into the system in Austin and creatives and encouraging it. And so, I mean, we, you know, it was a, it was a, uh, just really incredible pool of talent of all different kinds that were all mishmashing, you know, and um, encouraging each other and everybody kind of by the seat of their pants. And so we, you know, that was also a really, it was just a fortuitous time. Right, yeah, kind of the things were coalescing. They really were. It was sort of like the tar pits were turning into the tar pits. You know? <laughs> right. Um, so, so yeah, and then, you know, all of that other stuff, you were, you know, a lot of those people you're talking about, like Rodriguez and, you know, Linklater, and then, of course, there's now a generation after that. You know, of course, King of the Hill didn't start much later than that, and Mike Judge certainly spends a lot of time around here. So. Right. I, I didn't even think about this, but even, I guess, Blood Simple was done here, and that was like 84 right. or so. Right, 80. Yeah, I think 86 Maybe came out. Maybe, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, they were, well, because one of them was at, in school at UT, you know. I don't know that he actually finished. I don't, yeah, I don't remember. His degree there, but I, <laughs> but he, one of them was at UT. And, yeah, I mean, so, so many people came through that. Very cool uh, time to be coming up. Um, what I think is so great that 
your focus is on the writer because man being i feel like being a writer just from the outside i mean i do sort of write you know nominally but um i think actually being in the field it's got to be so difficult um because i know the level of passion that i have for stories so it's kind of like giving up your child giving up that baby mm -hmm. to someone else to let them you know kind of toy with your vision i mean that's got to be probably the biggest challenge is kind of defeating that element of your like you know, I, I want to hold on to this particular story. This is mine and giving it up to a director and, you know, all of the elements that come in later. So I think that's really cool that you're focusing on on that element of the <clears throat> of the production cycle. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the hardest thing for every writer to do. And and I think really the hardest thing is to share their work. Um, you know, it's it seems uh, counterintuitive that it would be so difficult in a medium that's all about audience, you know, but, but it is. And, and it's really hard for writers to, to put their work out there and let people read it and critique it, you know, because it is. It's, it's like very the, personal, I'm yeah. sure. And, and you know, it's the old adage is write what you know. So <laughs> yeah. I'm sure with those early projects, it's even tougher. Yeah. Um, and you know, when we, we started the screenplay competition, the first year we got, we thought we'll be lucky to get 250 scripts and we got 1200 oh, wow. plus scripts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, and it was with only about two months of marketing, you know, like trying to get out there way before the internet. Obviously. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And so it was, it was just, uh, you know, an old timey brochure. We had <laughs> um, and we, we did luck out. We had a lot of help from the Academy of motion pictures too. Um, and that was, uh, a really interesting immersion into how people um, are emotionally attached to their work, obviously, their scripts, and also how difficult it is for them to let go to some extent, to, because most of these people are writers who don't intend to direct. They're writers, they don't really want to be directors. You know, that's a smaller, much smaller club um, and so the personality is such that they don't want people really to be changing it, but they don't really want <laughs> to be to be actually creating the visual themselves. So there are different personality traits being a writer and being a director. Definitely. And I think it's kind of funny to take that even further because it's like when you're the director and then you have to relinquish your story or the story up to the editor mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a very similar relationship so it's kind of funny how you know it just keep, it goes on further and further mm -hmm. into creating that uh, end product so to speak what's the best approach like what would you say to um, someone who's starting out who's wants to get into writing for screen um, like what is what's the best starting route for them is it to you know just write a I mean I don't even know where to begin, to be honest. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'd say at various points of this evolution, um, I might have had different advice. But I think now, <clears throat> after having listened to so many people who have made it with so many different stories about how they made it, and if I looked at the concentric circles of all <laughs> right, of their, the Venn diagram. Yeah, their stories about what, what stuff was in common, the couple of things to me that the people who seem to make it almost always say are just keep writing. You just have to be writing 
all the time. You have to treat it like a nine to five job, whether anybody ever reads your stories or not, you just have to do it and keep doing it. And you have to be persistent and never give up. Like literally, even when people are, you know, rejecting you and rejecting you and rejecting you, and there's a lot of that, um, is that you have to be able to take that rejection and keep moving forward. You know, you gotta believe in yourself, in other words. and But also to be able to be open to notes from people. It's just know to be able to find the right people to get them from. You know, uh, not to just take it from anybody right. or your mom or your circle of friends or your brother and sister or your writer's group even. Um, you know, that that's not necessarily the best place to be getting it is that you want people to be critical, but you want them to be critical in a way that uh, you can trust their criticism. And and so it's, you know, that, that part of the equation is share. You've got to be able to be open to sharing your work with people, which means sometimes you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. You know, um, so, you know, that part of that is being bulletproof, I guess. Um, but, but I think that's it. I mean, I don't, I've heard so many different theories over the years of how the process in which people have to write and everybody has a different story. I don't think that's one of those things that's applicable across the board. Right. Um, what is though is loving the craft you're writing for so if you want to be a screenwriter or a television writer you better watch a lot of it you know and know what's good and what's not and what makes it and what doesn't and what people um, mistakes people have made how do you learn from those and apply them to your own work and um, that that part I think is a a big um, element in the process of somebody actually making it too is to know what you're going to be up against, not up against, not to copy it, but to know it, you know, not to, and the biggest piece of advice people give all the time is don't try to anticipate what people want. You'll never know that. That's, you know, the market goes there before you'll have any idea what it is, unless you're super lucky, you know, so, um, yeah, and I, I mean, I've seen people, too, just get a lot of attention off of stories that people told them, those will never happen, you know. And, you know, if you write, if you're, if you write well, if you write to the heart, people are going to notice you. You know, people want honesty, I think, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that extends to the actors and I think every element of, of the story. So that's, a, that's definitely a good point. Um, let's see, I was going to ask you something else along those lines because I definitely agree that you know there's not one path in this business start working out on like a feature length piece right away or is it better to do a short because I'll give you an example for myself um you know I kind of like filmmaking I kind of that would be an aspiration of mine but would I run into the difficulty of finding people you know what I mean because it's not a solitary task that you can kind of kind of do the way that writing is so writing has that appeal to me personally because it's something I can do on my own, but it's sort of like, where do I where do I start? You know what I mean? How ambitious do I need to be up front? Does that make sense? Yeah, I you know I, I think that's kind of in the vein of what I was saying before. I don't think you want to apply a rule to it. I think you want to write the story that you have, and if you have a short write it and make it, you know, whether that's going to be a business card for you or not, 
hard to say, right. you know. I mean, I can give you a thousand examples of each where it was and where it wasn't, <laughs> you know. Um, there are plenty of people who have done really well off of sh starting with a short. Um, but the big question is, do you have a story that's a short that is going to appeal to people? Or do you have a feature right. story? And I've also seen a lot of people who write <laughs> features. It, it, it should have been a short, you know? Um, and some that have written shorts that have gone on to realize, oh, I can really build this out and make a feature out of it. We've seen quite a few short films that have gotten made that uh, then later they went on and made a feature. You know, obviously the big example being Sling Blade, you know, or Bottle Rockets. Um, but, but you have to first know that that story is appealing. And sometimes a short helps teach you the way to find those appealing moments that later you'll need in a feature, you know. Um, I mean, I just, I don't, I think it really is kind of, kind of like a matter of what's in your heart, so. Gotcha. So the authenticity and. Yeah. I guess knowing your story well enough to. <laughs> but yeah. I think that can be the challenge maybe. Obviously, like you said, you know, you've seen both sides, so. Yeah, I see, so, I will tell you, I see so many films where I think, you know, we get a lot of films in. Um, you know, we got we got almost 10,000 screenplays this year, 9,000 something screenplay and teleplays, and we got 5,000 and some films, I think. And um, the thing, when I watch some of those films, like that screenplay, it's, it's on paper. Well, not even anymore, right? I mean, it's just in a, you know, PDF. <laughs> and so, so the, the film though, I mean, that means somebody spent a lot of time and a lot of money, um, a, a lot of sweat, and I'll see those sometimes and think, why didn't you make an, one more pass at your script before you did this? Because it's, you know, it's, it's the difference in running in high school and then <laughs> right. like running in college, you know, if you're a on the track team you know it's a different world um when you get into that world of actually having made the film there's so many you can convey a lot of things on the script in the script and then you get it to film and you've got to then worry about so many other elements the dimension goes from two-dimensional to multi-dimensional and you know was the lighting right was the actor right was the actress right was um the camera guy did he capture what he needed what are the nuances that you missed you know there's so many things that all of a sudden become incredibly important in how you portrayed that story and the and the editing is huge you know you were bring brought that up earlier you know how you edit your film they say, you know, three different films, the script you write, the, the film you shoot, and the film that ultimately is edited are three different films. And that part of it, I think for a lot of people, um, they get very excited about getting behind the camera, and they don't go back to the script and say, but is it ready, you know? Is it ready yet? 
and and that is you know again it's just like it's homework <laughs> did you do your homework how many times did you read it with live actors did you see if that dialogue really worked there's so many things you can do that don't cost you any money literally um, even if it's just getting your friends together just to hear how it sounds right. does this make any sense <laughs> I put this in here I thought it was funny I thought it was smart but now it doesn't make any sense at all when somebody says it you know I mean there are just so many things like that and then when somebody puts it in their film you're like oh why you know <laughs> right. so I mean it's just it's an interesting process and there's many um, sloughing of skin to reach that part where you get the final film um, and doing it right is just doing it a lot, you know. I think that's an interesting point about the editing because I think for me the editing process is like writing, but it's you know it's just using a different tool, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of the instead of the quote unquote pen, it's sort of a you know you're working with the visual element of it. But it's even interesting for someone like a, I don't know, like a Terrence Malick, that they find the film in the editing many times, which is a totally different style of, of filmmaking. But Yeah, I would say that works for a rare few. Right, yeah, um, of course. That, because the, the truth is, I mean, one shouldn't be finding their film in editing. You know, I could see that in a, in a documentary. I mean, I've made a couple yeah, of documentaries, and you do sometimes find it in, in that. I mean, a great example is that of that is hands on a hard body I'm sure that's not the film they went in to shoot <laughs> I'm sure the film they went in to shoot was something very different like the the what they thought they were going to get you know I'm not even familiar you have to tell I'm, oh, I'm curious about that's this. such a great film it, so we showed we actually did one of the first screenings of that film and then it ended up playing it was shot in Texas I think it was Longview so it was shot in Texas I think I think it was Longview, and they, it was a, everybody, it was one of those things they used to do a long time ago, if you, you know, a dealership put a truck out, and if you want to win the truck, you had to put your hand on the truck for the whole weekend, I think it was some kind of Toyota or, you know, Mitsubishi, some, some um, truck, and they went there to shoot the group of people who'd spend all weekend in the hot sun putting their hand on a car. <laughs> You know, and what they got was this incredible film. And Matthew McConaughey was one of the producers on it, um, and they they got all these great people who went out there, and it was just like it was like wisdom. You know, they they all had a view. They all had thoughts that weren't just about the truck. They were about a whole lot more. You know, about daily life and it was a beautiful film just beautiful but I'm sure that that film was edited um, it found in the editing room you know uh, it was it was unlikely and great and it played at the Dobie for I think like three years straight just nonstop never <laughs> took it down because people loved that movie um, I think we added a third screening during the festival it was so popular but 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 for the most part, I mean, you can really make your a narrative film um, a lot better in the editing room. But the story shouldn't be found there. Right, you know, yeah. I mean, the story the story you should go in with the story, um, and 
and really be able to hone it in that process and and I think you know a great there are so many great editors out there that you know really do that 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 help people find the gems and the peaks and valleys and the drama you know um, that might not have necessarily come out in the very many layers that you are shooting you know? um, yeah but I mean I, I there is a magic to editing and it's when you find somebody who's a great editor they're a great storyteller usually so. that's what I, I love it's so to me it's so interesting how you can kind of pull apart or pull these sort of you know you shoot scenes out of order you shoot them at different times locations pulling all of those disparate disparate pieces into one kind of unified cohesive story to me is just I don't know there's something so uh, rewarding or I don't know it's just incredible about that that sense of putting together a unified vision across all of these just bizarre like you know we shot this then we did this then you know maybe could have been years in between mm -hmm. takes or you know what i mean so i think that's pretty interesting yeah but i kind of want to switch gears a little bit now into um hearing a little bit about what you're excited about this year i guess particularly in the form of panelists um i did see that you'll be giving a Keenan Ivory Wayne's an award this year mm -hmm. <laughs> and as someone who kind of grew up on in living color I think that's that's pretty awesome yeah I uh I have to say this is um a sort of uh this is a great year for me a monumental year for me mainly because uh, finally some of my um big crushes as far as <laughs> as artists um certainly him because in living color i too grew up with and it was i remember when it came on and i was like whoa how are they doing that right seriously you know when everybody talks about hbo now it's like you guys should have been around at the beginning of fox right you know? <laughs> they were doing crazy stuff and and then also walter hill is um i'm just in love with walter hill <laughs> and have been he was one of the first names i learned as a credit on the screen because I loved his movies so much. I'm a big action fan and um, and he and Long Ride, The Long Riders was one of my favorite films and um, I mean obviously almost everything you can name of his. I mean The Warriors and Streets of Fire, they were all, you know, films I grew up on and loved. They were in that time period of my life when I was just absolutely um, in, you know, obsessed with cinema and with film or whatever you want to call it. And so he just happened to uh, kind of uh, strum my heartstrings with the, kind of <laughs> with the kind of stories that he writes. I just, 48 hours, ah, come on, you know. So, so we're super, super excited about Walter Hill and about Keenan Wayans. And Kenneth Lonergan was a huge get for us this year. We're so lucky. I mean, you know, coming off his Oscar in a movie everybody loved, um, you know, a movie you know last year nobody it's interesting because the topic of conversation for many of these days is how you know the comic book movies and oh my god how many more of these <laughs> movies can we take and you know I, I won't I won't disagree with the premise but last year was a great year for personal stories um, the kind of things that everybody says Hollywood isn't making anymore and you know, I haven't actually gone in and done the research and seen who all made those movies. Maybe Hollywood wasn't involved in the front part of it, but certainly there were a lot of great movies last year um, that that were 
quote personal stories, you know, hidden figures and uh, Manchester by the Sea, and there were just so many. It was a great year for it, and maybe a sign of things to come, you know. Um, you know, Taylor Sheridan is my new, you know, I would love his movies, and, you know, cool that he's a Texan. Um, and he makes stories. They're great stories, and nobody has a cape. So. <laughs> yeah, I, oh man, I still think there's even, man, the comic book, it's kind of funny. I've actually gotten back into comic books within the last two years, mm-hmm. and I love it, um, to be honest. It's, it's funny. There's so many crazy premises and stories out there that haven't been, even still haven't been touched by Hollywood just yet. Um, but man, there's some really interesting stuff out there that really gets my mind going in a totally different track. Uh-huh. So I've found that it's kind of become an obsession of late. I've well, been reading I think a lot. It's cool that um, now they're finding their way to the small screen too, because I think that's a lot more opportunity. When you look at something like American Gods, you know, I know it wasn't a comic book, but it, you know, is a medium that that um, is within it in that genre, and see the kind of uh, well, wasn't Walking Dead a comic book? It yeah. Was, yeah. Uh-huh. So that that now you know in that world too, not only um, does it afford more opportunity, it affords more opportunity for them to really tell the long form stories, you know rather than being stuck in this two-hour box. Right. So, I think it's kind of interesting that there's, in the comic book world, there's kind of a parallel. So you have, like, you know, you have Marvel and DC, mm-hmm. which are kind of like the main, that's kind of like the network TV mm-hmm. kind of metaphor there. But then you have so many of, you have, like, the HBO-level stuff uh-huh. that I think is great. And American Gods is kind of kind of plays in that world. But um, have you have you heard of Pre- Preacher at all? Yeah, I saw Preacher. I watched part of that season that first season of preacher and unfortunately i spent so much time watching other content right you know it's really hard for me to keep up and in and in truth it's just hard to keep up there's so much on and everybody's always touting some new right show, yeah <laughs> you know and they jump on the bandwagon because binge watching has a different um it's a whole different mindset of viewing and liking. You know, I find that I've binge watched some things that I thought I enjoyed, and then I was like, I don't care if I ever watch another season of that again. You know, that's not worth my time necessarily once I went away from it because I sort of <laughs> feel like it's like, um, it's a little bit like, you know, when you're in a restaurant and you get caught up all in the oh this place is supposed to be great and it's got great reviews and everybody loves it and it's you know the the new hot place and then you can't remember the meal two <laughs> days later you right. know? and you're like well why I spent a lot of money there and I, you know what it's taking it off my list it may have been a in the moment good but and I feel that way about a lot of this binge watching um, you know there's been a few things that I just thought eh, I can live without that again I don't care and then a few that just stick with me, like I keep thinking about their storylines. One, one like that is Better Call Saul. I just love Better Call Saul. <laughs> and there's a, there's a, you know, where I'm literally waiting for the next season. Um, and, and I'm a little bit of a luddite because I actually prefer to watch shows week, week by to week. week huh? Yeah, I just, I like to think about them. You know, sometimes I like to watch the same episode two or three times in a row. Oh, yeah. I totally, I will rewatch 
over and over yeah. again, yeah. to be honest. And I and I and I like that anticipation of the next show. You know, when I'm thinking thinking about, wonder what they're going to do. It really makes me think. Right. You know, delve into their storylines a little bit more. And I feel like that with binge TV, you also find that, you know, sometimes their storylines are really weak, but they're able to pull it off because you're watching it all at once right but if you have to think about it and remember it maybe it wasn't kind of particularly memorable it. yeah you know for a reason um and you can see the craft like you know there's a lot to be said for old network television craft even though people beat up network television it did teach people how to create long-standing storylines and depth in their characters and their storylines and and some of the new binge watching shows just don't have that to me. I don't, you know, I'm missing it. I don't feel um, really attached necessarily to all the characters. That's funny that you mentioned that because I've been going back and trying to catch up on Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's so hard because, um, I mean, that's like sort of going back to pretty bland network TV days. Uh -huh. And it's sort of 50% of it is that, 50% of is great David Lynchness. Uh -huh. You have to take the good with the bad yeah. for me, as far as that goes. But. Yeah, and that was an interesting show too, just because there was enough. I mean, you know, talking about what Keenan Wayans did for Fox, but that show, and we have Mark Frost coming in, the guy um, who co-created uh, Twin Peaks, and that show was when it came out, it was crazy, right? And <laughs> Everybody was watching it largely because it was crazy. You know, it was like, what are they going to do now? <laughs> and there's a beauty to not knowing that, you know. Um, I, I went back and watched it. I interviewed him last year. And uh, I went back and watched it before I interviewed him. And I was surprised at how much of that show I remembered, even though it was, I don't know, when was it, 25 years ago? Yeah, I think 30. Maybe. 90, 91, yeah. something like that. I vaguely, vaguely remember it. <laughs> but I mean, I remembered the show, a lot of it. It was, and you know, some of that was definitely the David Lynchian visuals that you uh, are, are kind of unforgettable, you know. So, so yeah, it's cool. It's cool that that's kind of made its full circle. But, but I don't know. I think they're, um, you know, the way I, I like, I enjoy that anticipation and even loss um, when a show's going off, you know, or it disappears for eight months. And then you have to wait till it comes back and kind of live with, uh, oh my God, what are they gonna do next? I love that. That's, it's like being excited about Christmas. And you don't really get that with binge watching quite the same. Definitely, I think sun Sunday has kind of become, so I'm like a big HBO kind of guy. That's, going back to The Sopranos, that's like, an institution it's like a ritual yeah every sunday and it's like it's carried on from the sopranos to each you know they've been coming they've had an incredible run of shows yeah over the years um that i've loved and so it sets a high bar it's hard it's honestly hard for me to go back and watch even some of the other stuff even that like an amc does just because mm -hmm. the production value that hbo their standard is just so you know things are so well shot right. oftentimes that it's tough to go back and watch like a a Netflix original a uh -huh. lot of times for me, you know what I mean? Because it doesn't have that same feel. Granted, no. not everyone, but no, I mean, an HBO definitely set a standard for sure for 
um, you know, that cable television programming. They, I mean, even, you know, when, and there were some shows before Sopranos, but even with the Sopranos like that, that was just, they were masterful episodes. And we had David Chase here a few years ago, and we actually had him in here twice, once in the second season of the show, and then uh, back in 2000, whenever that was, two or three or something like that. And then uh, a couple of years ago, and he, it was fascinating to talk to him about that show. This was a guy who wrote on the Rockford Files, you know, a show that now some people would probably make fun of. I personally still love that show and would, you know, <laughs> I have the box set. I watch it <laughs> nice. occasionally. I, Jim, nobody was cooler than James Garner. And, but I mean, look, you know, that kind of working through the drudgery probably of network television helped David Chase be able to create something as awesome as The Sopranos. So, um, so yeah, I, I still, I think there's a lot of good in old network TV, even though it sometimes takes a, a beating, I think. That kind of reminds me a little bit of George R.R. R. Martin mm -hmm. as well, because I've, he wrote that, he worked on that live action version of Beauty and the Beast. Do you remember that? Yeah, I totally do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because wasn't the woman... Um, it was Linda Hamilton. Linda Hamilton, um, yes, yes, yes. She who went on to Terminator fame. Um, she didn't have the uh, same musculature <laughs> right. uh, in Beauty and the Beast. But yeah, I didn't realize he worked on that. That's crazy. Yeah, I remember that show. I watched it, yeah. Yes, it was kind of funny because so he got his start. He kind of cut his teeth writing for TV and then... That's sort of what his experience was somewhat the genesis of what led him to write mm -hmm. the Song of Ice and Fire, which, oh. you know, Game of Thrones is based on. Huh. So I think that that's a really interesting dynamic between the writer and, you know, adapting to screen and then, right. you know. <laughs> well, that was certainly a fantasy show, too. Not bloody and brutal, but fantasy. Yeah. Crazy. Huh. Because I think what's, so his whole, somewhat of his driving force for writing the story was to be unfilmable or so, you know, this, he was kind of disillusioned by working in the business and, you know, the adaptation and, you know, kind of all the, I guess, the business elements of, of the TV world that kind of, you know, distract from the story, right, ultimately. And so that led him to write the series, which was just, it's just, I don't know if you've ever tackled it at all, but it's mm -hmm. incredibly sprawling and there's millions and millions of subplots and mm -hmm. characters. It's just, it's unbelievable. So um, adapting that into the Game of Thrones TV show, which is actually, I wouldn't have touched fantasy before the show. And then that kind of got, I was like, oh, wow, this is a gritty, mm -hmm. you know, this is a serious, you know, there's political intrigue. There's a lot of things going on here that I ordinarily fantasy, I was kind of like, nah, that's not really my, yeah. that's for geeks, you know what I mean? Was yeah, sort well, of the season, feeling. season one was riveting. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely, I mean, it, it was, um, it would have been hard not to be, it would, yeah, have been really difficult not to be taken in by it. Um, and I didn't really look at it as fantasy, because I'm not a big fantasy fan. Um, it was just great storytelling. I mean, they just 
always kept you on the edge of their seat of your seat you know it was it was a, they did a phenomenal job um you know i haven't watched the last couple of seasons but but the first couple were i think really masterful and and they've changed they've clearly changed the yeah way. It, it it's kind of i mean the writing has has suffered for yeah. sure once they've kind of gone off as the books ran out right, right. they definitely ran into a lot of a lot of trouble which tells you you know that sometimes the structure of story is important <laughs> you know um, I think that's you know you can kind of see where they went off the rails yeah so, so it's kind of become the thing that he wanted to av- avoid right. sadly yeah um, but man I just I don't understand it though because I feel like er- early on in the first three or four seasons they had even written some really great off book moments that were really well done so I'm it was you know I had faith in them to really yeah. bring it home strong but I definitely feel like things have not gone in yeah, the same direction you know that's an industry where people um don't know when to quit right they, they really don't know when to walk away you know I always appreciated Seinfeld for saying hey gotta get out we're done we're done we can't keep doing this right. you know and let's do it while we're good well people still love us um and it's i think it's just hard for you know again it's it's not a it's not art it's not about creativity it's it's the show business and it's about business so they're going to keep something going as long as they can soak it right you know? even lucille ball <laughs> you know when she came back in show after show after show it was like you're not that young anymore lucy you know i mean that's but but it was a paycheck so I mean, kind of, it's how do you, we're our capitalist economy, so. You have a couple of other panelists that I'm excited for. Um, David Simon yeah. and George Pelicanos. Yep, they're going to come and present the last episode of The Deuce, which will be airing after the festival ends. Um, and we've had them both here before a couple of times. David Simon was an honoree. Uh, he was awesome. And... Uh, and Pelicanus has been here before too, a couple of times. Uh, so we're pretty excited about that. And they're um, going to present a retrospective screening of The Seven Ups, which is a movie from the 70s action film. Totally great, like in that whole world of the French Connection. Okay. And like they're like totally, uh, I think, um, something that probably had some resonance with the deuce you know because because of the time period have you had a, an opportunity to see the pilot of the deuce yet i haven't i haven't had a chance to see it it's on my list obviously because they're coming but and we're just still watching movies <laughs> right this yeah. year and we've um you know this this the, i'm excited about watching that because frank james franco has been here a bunch of times uh and we're all big fans of his, and I've just heard, you know, really great things about the show. So, kind of, I'm kind of anxious to watch it. I also can't watch it when my kids are around. <laughs> right. Yeah, no <laughs> so, kidding. And she's around a lot. Um, yeah, and we have a couple. We have some other, you know, really great people coming in too. There's a lot of TV as always. You know, we're we've been doing TV long before anybody was doing it uh, at a film festival back since literally David Chase I think was one of our first people back in 2001 or 2002 is when we started I think we first started with Altman and and 
that's always a so much fun to have people here who will present episodes of you know some of their current film or, or TV shows or current or old shows um, and uh, we've got a lot of comedy folks coming in this year again and you know we usually have a really great array of people from various genres um, Eric Heiser who put out one of my favorite films from last year uh, The Arrival is coming and he's going to do a script to screen on The Arrival um, I'm pretty excited for that uh, I just love that story and um, you know I don't know you're you know whether you're a big sci-fi fan but we have a few people um in that world of horror and sci-fi um trying to think of of who are the names i feel like is there a is it michael green that worked on blade runner 2049 yeah so michael green's coming in and michael green of course did you know heroes on tv and then um he has american gods that's one of his shows uh and yes he's got the new blade runner um, and we're pretty we're pretty excited. Michael's been here a bunch. Um, he's another comic book, you know, long history in that. Um, and in fact, we just did an interview with him when American Gods came out. For we have a TV radio program called On Story on PBS and on PRI, and so we get a, you know we try to keep it current with stuff. Um, sorry we've got Scott Frank coming in and he did Logan last year in fact I just saw the guy who created Logan the character died yesterday one of them. oh yeah Lynn Wine yeah yeah and so he's got a new western on Netflix coming out um, he's gonna be here talking about that and uh, great writer really one of my favorite screenwriters of all time actually and yeah this it's just it's shaping up Shane Black's gonna be back so oh, there's a rhyme um, he's uh, going to do actually a conversation with Walter Hill so, oh, very nice. who, who he says influenced him a whole lot um, you can see that <laughs> uh, so that'll be exciting and uh, he's I guess just off shooting the predator so um, which I think is supposed to come out next year that's my favorite action movie of all time. You're, Love it. You, God, it's so good. You cannot compete with me on that. <laughs> I've probably seen that movie a hundred times. Oh, yeah. The original, uh, absolutely one of my favorite. What other movie has given us two governors? Right. Right. <laughs> and, God, what is it? Son, even Sonny Landum, I think is his name. He just passed away not long ago, but the, I forget what his name was. Blaine, maybe? No, yeah. no, no, no. Blaine was, uh, that was Jesse the, Jesse the Jesse Body's Ventura, character was yeah, Blaine. Yeah, yeah. But he was the Indian Kind yes. of guy. Yeah. Kind of a kind of a rowdy guy. Yeah. Apparently they said on set that like all three of those guys were <laughs> well, a little crazy. A great piece of trivia is that Shane Black was the first guy killed. Ah. <laughs> he was an actor in the original Predator That's and he funny. was the first guy shot. Um he tells a joke and yes. he gets killed. So. <laughs> I remember that horrible joke. Uh, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a, a much more crude way of <laughs> reminding people about that um but yeah it's a um that i mean i'll be excited to see his version of it because i sure love that one that was i mean literally i i don't know that i could really count how many times i've seen it <laughs> same so um i'd like to wrap up if you have any great maybe some funny maybe a funny story from over the years uh bonus points if you have a terry malick story 
no Terry Malick stories. Um, yeah. That was kind of my joke because I actually, uh, I had Mark Bristol on a couple of, maybe mm-hmm. about a month ago, and he told me the story about how ba- ultimately he kind of blew Terry off because he had contacted him to work on uh, the Thin Red Line. Uh-huh. Oh, to do the story. Do the storyboards. Yeah. And Mark had no idea who he was. You know, he's like, oh, this is this is Terry. I've never used a storyboard artist before. But I I saw your drawings and they're great. You should work on my little movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like I'm sitting there with Mark. I'm, Mark's telling me the story and I'm like crying because it's like oh my god you're just like totally <laughs> blowing this guy off. It was so funny. Uh, you know there are so many stories over the years. I'm not I'm not sure. Um, how quickly I could pull <laughs> one out that's telling, not telling a tale right. of somebody who uh, keeps coming back. I certainly <laughs> would not want to be doing that necessarily. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'm trying to think of who. Yeah, I mean, we've had some great Oliver Stone moments. Ah. I mean, he's really a... Um, he... Uh, he, he, I'll tell you this one it's sort of excuse my shameless name dropping but we had him here in maybe the first time was like 1996 maybe um, and he was showing a film and we had Dennis Hopper here too and oh, wow. so they did yeah it was really cool they did a panel at the Paramount Theater the two of them just sort of talking about what it was like, you know, when they first started and what the world was like, you know, and it was um, mesmerizing. And I was standing in the back uh, of the parent on the stage of the Paramount, but in the back in the wing, you know, where obviously nobody out front could see me. And it's totally dark back there. It's really hard to see because it's pitch black. And I was watching the panel from the side and uh, Dennis Hopper was telling this story about having worked with John Wayne and I mean, it was really, really cool. It was like, you know, when you're looking at how um, you want to, like, when I was thinking, nope, you know, if somebody had said when I was a kid, oh, you know, you'll be in the film festival business, I'd be like, what the hell is that? You know, like, who goes into <laughs> right. the film festival business, right? <laughs> and so, so standing back there, I remember thinking, this is one of those moments where I'm thinking, oh, all this work is for something cool, actually. I'm sitting here listening to this story I could never have heard firsthand from somebody. And uh, they they were kind of yucking it up, and I um, saw somebody at the Paramount that worked at the Paramount go to the back doors off the alley and open them up. And there were... Um, a couple of people who walked in to the door and I was looking and didn't recognize any of them and then one of them I realized this very tall stately beautiful black woman with perfect hair and she was huge in a sense like muscles and um, but she was all dressed up and I thought okay what first of all nobody's supposed to be coming through that back door so (laughs) who are these people that somehow have skirted the system you know and i looked at her and i thought i i know her why do i know her but she wasn't here speaking at the festival and as it turned out i i was 
reaching into the back of my brain and uh, admit that I used to watch a show called American Gladiators. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, you know, I've already revealed Predator is one of my favorite films. <laughs> so um, American Gladiators was right up there with one of my favorite guilty pleasures before <laughs> reality TV ever happened. And it was one of the gladiators oh, from American Gladiators. <laughs> and I walked up to her and I didn't want to seem, I didn't want to embarrass myself and seem gushy, but I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and she just said, she stuck her hand out and introduced herself and said, uh, well, I travel with Oliver when he's in this part of the country. And I was like, yeah, I don't, okay. I don't even know what, <laughs> what? that means. Right? <laughs> like, I have no idea Seriously? that she came through that door. And I mean, I was just, it was like, wow, I'm, I'm an American gladiator is here. It's not just Dennis Hopper and Oliver Stone. <laughs> So anyway, there's one of my, my very happy moments. Um, nice. Uh, I think that that's a good way to wrap us up. I do want to put in a plug, though, mm -hmm. for OnStory, because uh, actually, a few, I had actually stumbled on, I was listening to um, PRI, and I heard mm -hmm. it come on, and I was like, oh, Barbara, wow, I didn't, I didn't even know that was a thing, and I really enjoyed that. And so I uh, definitely encourage listeners to go check out OnStory. Um, it's available in the iTunes podcast mm -hmm. apps as well as yep. um, I don't know when it airs on PBS or anything. But. Well, yeah, it airs in eighty, almost ninety percent of the country, so it's all different, you know, wherever. But it's on on KLRU on um, Saturdays, and it's on uh, it's on KUT on Saturday nights at eight. Um, they're different shows, you know, but I mean that was also the other cool thing about year one. We started audio taping everything. So all these panels with all these people, really cool when we just did on Saturday night, I mean, sad, but cool, was a panel from 1996 that we found in the archive that was Toby Hooper and oh, Wes wow. Craven together. Oh, yeah, it was, so cool. it was amazing. And they were just talking about horror, but horror then, like all these Stephen King movies hadn't even been made yet. You know, they hadn't made The Mist. Um, you know, they were talking about Stephen King stuff and Frank Darabont hadn't, made even Shawshank at that point and so they were just talking about having you know tr hoping that some people would make some of these bodies of work with Stephen King's and talking about the state of horror at the time and that was you know before Scream came out so so it was really you know there's just so much stuff we have in there and we actually gave our archive to Texas State University to oh, cool. the, yeah the Whitliff collections at oh, Texas nice. State yeah and so they have the material so it's really cool so. Very cool. I'm a Texas State alum, so I have to go. I have to go check that out next time I'm down there. Yeah, go. They, they. I mean, you can access all of it there. We, they have all the uncut material. We, you know, we obviously cut it all to put it put it out on TV and radio, um, and a, we have a new book coming out on UT Press this year, t next year too. But there, but theirs is all of it, you know. And they have a great archive over there. It's got Sam Shepard in it. Um, they've got Willie Nelson. They've got all the uh, Lonesome Dove stuff. They have the King of the Hill collection. Um, they have, they're really, it's really an amazing collection. And there's a lot of film and media there. Okay. Well, Barbara, I want to thank you again for uh, getting schizoid with me on the podcast. Uh, so thank thanks you. so much. Yeah, thank you.